Hi, hello, and welcome to Oh Boy, the podcast presented by Man Repeller. I'm your host, Jay Bume, and on today's episode, my guest is the writer Carly Shortino. Uh, you may know her from her website, Slut Ever. She also hosts shows on Vice. She writes for Vogue. It's all great. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation I had with her in my kitchen, so let's get into it. Tom Green. Dude. He's the best. Like, I don't think he gets enough credit. Like, people kind of for- completely forgot about him. Yeah. And the way that a lot of comedy is today is all can be traced back to Tom Green. Yeah, really absurdist. Stuff. He pulled so much good stunts. Yeah. Like, oh, man. Like, do you remember that time he airbrushed? He did. He got, um, like, an erotic airbrushing of his parents <laughs> on the hood of their car. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, oh, that's so good. The parents were the best characters in the show. I know. So where did you, where did you grow up? I grew up in upstate New York, in the Hudson Valley. It's about an hour and a half north of here. Oh, where? Near Poughkeepsie in okay. New Paltz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like hesitant to get my exact address for some reason. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. So like, specifically, really like, zip code, please. <laughs> was it like, was it a suburban kind of space? Was it rural? What What was your experience like? It's a small town. It's really changed over the years. So at the time, um, you know, now there's like city overspill. But when I was growing up, it was like second, third generation Italian people. Mm-hmm. There was no, like, I'd never heard of like sushi or curry. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There was not mm-hmm. any foreign foods or anything like that. Right. Really small town, conservative. My parents were really religious. Every, you know, everyone's religious. Oh, were you going to church on Sundays and stuff? Yeah. Like my mom would watch the God Channel all day and then she would tape these documentaries. Like they weren't documentaries. They were just like nuns sitting in a room talking about why you shouldn't have sex before you're married. Oh and God. she would tape them and then force me and my brother to watch them. Uh, older brother, younger brother? Younger. He's younger. five years younger. Are you guys still close? Mm-hmm. He lives in Brooklyn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he got out too? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> we're, I'm still close with them. It's weird, but we just sort of have agreed to disagree. We There's... You know when you your folks or your brother, you and your brother, my parents. You okay. know you have like a person that you're a real personality, and then you have like that your personality around your parents. Oh, oh, completely. It's crazy, and also it's so scary because I'm almost like afraid. You're afraid it's gonna happen to you. You're like, am I just gonna get older and become more conservative? You know, like how I do know. I stay YOLO forever? I almost like want that to change about myself because it's like I just turned thirty, and mm-hmm. I, when I thought of myself at thirty, you know, five years ago, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm probably gonna have calmed down a little bit right you know i'm probably not gonna be blacked out like four nights a week but no it's like not true you're just still yourself but it's more tragic do you still do you still (laughs) live in brooklyn now i live in gramercy yeah i just i think that um you know i i I can only speak to living in this neighborhood it's just like it just feels like a carnival for adults never closed (laughs) yeah you know i just want to get out I'm, oh. like, sick from eating too much cotton candy. Arrested development. Riding too many, Well, I like, think that's true. It's, like, in New York, coasters. you're allowed, like, an extra, f- like, five slash 15 years of adolescence. Yeah. Because you're forced into it. Because it's, like, you have to have a roommate. Mm-hmm. Like, you you dress like an adult baby. Yep. I still wear clothes that, like, I wore when I was 13. Like, T-shirts. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that's why I like it here, though. But sometimes, like, you know, like, I don't know. It's just sometimes I feel like I'm, like, I'm ready to cross that line yeah but there's no coming back well it's like i think that i'm at the age now where you eat it's my my social group is splitting in two ways so some people are just being like i'm gonna get married and Mm -hmm. i'm gonna have a kid and Mm -hmm. that's happening now of course with my friends and the others are just like i'm gonna go the radically the other direction and just become more of an idiot just like you know like how far can i push it yeah yeah i wonder when that stops being a good look though you know 
I don't know. I keep delaying. I'm, I keep being like, oh, like 32. And then it's like, no, it's 34. And now I'm like, maybe like never. Right. I go out a lot because I work from home all day mm-hmm. and I'm alone all day. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like sitting at my computer and by the end, and I'm not around a single person and I have no human contact. And then by, you know, 8 p.m. I want to go out. And so I go and I have dinner out with my f- a friend or two right. almost every single night. And then I go have drinks. Whereas I feel like if you work in an office environment, by the end of the day, you just want to be by home by yourself. Right, right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. So just to go back, how do you think growing up in that, ta- in that town upstate, kind of in that situation with like very religious parents, how do you think that sh- shaped who you are? Um, I think... I definitely wanted to get out. I think that, I don't know, there's there's like the Camille Paglia school of thought where um, subversion needs limits to violate. Mm-hmm. So if you have con- a conservative family, everything is a boundary. And so you just want to break it, break it down. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, I mean, that could be true for some people or it could not be true. I mean, that's she uses that line when she's describing Madonna because Madonna grew up in a conservative Italian Catholic family. And so did she and so did I. So I like to align myself Mm -hmm, with them because they're they're two of my heroes. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when my parents would say, you can't have sex, you you can't have boys over, then I would be like, I'm going to find a way to go have sex with someone under the bleachers at a baseball field, you know? And then, but then when I moved, I moved to London when I was just, I just turned 18, just about turned 18. And um, I moved there to go to college. I ended up dropping out of college within, after one semester. Right. But I stayed in London for like over six years. Why did you, why did you want to go there? Because I was like, that sounds far away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, I was doing a lot of community theater and I wanted to do acting and playwriting at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I was at this drama school and then I immediately was like wait I would rather just like be on ecstasy so I dropped out of my college and but then I stayed in London and uh I think I was just so curious because I lived a pretty sheltered you know I had just had a normal girl and my friends would make fun of me they were like you're like a normal girl like a basic bitch who like got on the wrong bus and now (laughs) like you live in a squatted commune and it's so weird that you're here yeah then but I was but you fit in there you felt did you feel like you fit in but then I always felt like the out, like this neutral outsider because I was the type of girl in high school who like wore Uggs and got my hair highlighted and was like the head of the prom committee and editor of my school yearbook, you know? Wow. So was there, cause I mean, there, that's two totally different. And I was of. slutty too okay. at the same time. Was there like a moment where you kind of like where you shifted? Was it a conscious thing? Like, who, like what were the things that you were into growing up? I was into like basic stuff. I went to be like a Britney Spears concert on my 16th birthday. Mm-hmm. I was really into sports. I played sports all year round. I mean, I was just really, really normal. Were you, I mean, like, were you getting into trouble when you were younger? Were you kind of like walking a straight line? No, I would graduated the top of my class. I was a really still sexually curious. Like, you know what I mean? I had, a, I had quite a bit of sex with in high school, which I guess is like the one thing that would be not square right that i did but everything else i did was so normal Mm -hmm. and then i just when i moved to london it all just came crashing down i was just like i don't want to do that anymore yeah what was that moment like do you remember that moment well it was just crazy because i had never experienced anything i got this like boyfriend and i moved in i met all these artists i'd never met like a gay person before oh wow you know i'd never met anyone who said that they were an artist before Mm -hmm. um 
And I remember my boyfriend at the time was like, I'm in an indie band. And I was like, does that mean you're from India? Yeah. Like I had never heard the term indie. Is your hair still uh, like, are you still like spray tanning and like dyeing your hair? Are you still wearing Uggs at this point? I definitely brought my Uggs to England. And then yeah. I think I quickly moved on from them. But yeah. I did, yeah, like went tanning in high school. Uh, um, I'm from like the town that Snooky's from. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like that gives you an idea of the type of person that yeah. I grew up with. Were your parents supportive of you? Did they have a plan for you? Or, or were they just like, you want to go study acting, you know, go to, go to London. That's, that sounds good to us. I think they were just confused. You know what I mean? Like they didn't even have passports. Mm-hmm. They'd never, they, you know, like they met in high school. They got married really young. Same town. Yeah. Same town I grew up in. And, um, and my dad wanted me to go to West Point, which is literally a military college. Yeah. I was like, I'm not going to go to boot camp, dad. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to move to London and be an artist. And he was like, I actually don't even know how to comprehend that. So they basically cut me off financially. And then when I dropped out of college, they just stopped talking to me. I didn't talk to them for a couple of years, actually. Wow. So, so you get to London, you kind of have this like breakthrough in a way, maybe major change. And what was that like? And, you know, if you're cut off from your folks, like how are you surviving? Well, it was like, it sounds so easy to be like, I was discovering myself. I'm a person who just is really drawn to experiences. Mm-hmm. I guess we all are, but I'm just like the kind of person that can't say no to anything. Right. Or just like, you know, that sounds like I've something I've never done is a good enough reason to do it. Mm-hmm. So I met all these people who, they were like artists who were living in this squatted sort of commune. Is this like thing. East London? Yeah, it's Southeast London. Southeast so London. Okay. when I met them, they were living in this like abandoned mall. Um, like, Primarily, it was like this group of people that was, I don't want to say the leader because that sounds weird, but this guy that I met. <laughs> like, the leader of your post-apocalyptic mall squat. Yes, exactly. <laughs> was an artist called Matthew Stone, who's still one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they would have all of these raves and they would be making art, kind of music. And I was like, wow, I've never met anybody like this. So I ended up moving into a squat with them mm-hmm. and I squatted for six years. Oh, with wow. this group of people basically and it was the group of people would change and there was like sort of between 10 and 15 of us all the time um moving around i lived in like five, i think five or six different squats all in southeast london over the course of that time so i wasn't paying rent what ever did you, what did you love about that style of living it felt really cool because it, you you get so close to people it was also this really crazy breeding ground for insane things to happen because we were all in our early 20s late teens, early 20s, mid-20s, no one had anything to do. No one had a job. Right. You know, we were all like, quote, making art, but like, dare I ask where the art is? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I was like blogging, kind of. Um, and then, so we would just party all the time and, <laughs> and dot, dot, dot. Um, I don't know. It was just a, a really, I just met such interesting people and it mm-hmm. became such fodder for my work. Like, that's why I became a writer. Like, genuinely, I was like, this is a really strange experience to be having and I have the foresight to understand that and so when I started my blog I was 21 years old and I was like I'm just gonna write about stuff that happens in this house that was the point of starting the blog it was never like oh I'm gonna write a sex blog sex was involved because like when you live with 15 drunk young people like there's a lot of sex but like a little messy but it wasn't a sex blog for years it was just a personal story blog at the beginning did you did you kind of once you quit school did you give up on acting were you like you didn't want to do that anymore or yeah I sort of didn't I didn't ca- I realized being with a bunch of actors in drama school even for a few months I was like oh I don't actually care like, these people really care mm-hmm. um 
And I didn't even know what I wanted to do, really. And then I had this friend who worked at Dazed and Confused, mm-hmm. the magazine. Mm-hmm. And when I was about 20, she was like, why don't you be a writer? You're curious. You're always asking questions. And I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was just that simple. And she was like, be my intern. And then I was her intern. I mean, were there, were there writers that you had really admired? It's sort of... Uh, I almost feel like I did it backwards. Um, I didn't, wasn't a big reader when I was younger. And then when I started writing, it got me interested in reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of like this whole, everything's felt accidental, which sounds embarrassing. But I remember, you know, I was writing about sex and someone saying like, oh, you're a feminist. And me being like, oh, and having to like look up what that meant. And then you're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That, yep. And it's weird because it just felt really intuitive. But um, at, when I started writing my blog, there was a couple of writers who I was reading at the time that influenced the early writing, which yeah. one of which was Dennis Cooper, who's writing that I don't necessarily connect to as much now. He's mm-hmm. basically like a, a a queer... Well, it's he wrote in a lot of novels that follow these doom and gloom, young, sexually confused, skinny boys mm. um, who are sort of all want to die and all having a lot of sex and it's all about pa- weird power play relationships and people killing each other basically it, it sounds like a, a writer on the same kind of path as like Greg Araki you ever seen any Greg Araki's films yeah I actually am from maybe making well you we're have, writing something together now really you and yeah. Greg Araki yeah that's amazing I know I love him so much I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to jinx it but of course he is like when I saw the movie Nowhere, when yeah. I was like 22, it changed yeah. my life. Yeah. Yeah. I had the same feeling when I saw Doom Generation when I was in high school. Yeah. I remember like like early, like, you know, AOL modem days internet. Yeah. And like looking for like pictures of Rose McGowan and like yeah. printing them out on a shitty like dot matrix printer to like hang on my wall. Apparently he cast her, like he just saw her on the street. Yeah. She'd never been in a movie before that movie. That's sometimes, I think that's the best way to, to find people. Yeah, that's you know? why I love a lot of those mumblecore movies of the, mm-hmm. and they just put their friends in them, yeah. and they basically just act like themselves. Yeah, which sometimes can be a little bit annoying. But it's <laughs> just like fucking, just like <laughs> privileged white people and their dumb problems. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I resent the fact that I really relate to this. <laughs> uh, okay, so Dennis Cooper, and then I loved Mary Gateskill, who wrote whose book Bad Behavior really affected me. So it's a book of short stories, and one of which. Um, is secret is this the the short story that the movie secretary was based on mm-hmm. so it's all these short stories about the protagonists are often like sex workers or people in power play relationships and it's just largely about sex mm-hmm. um snm prostitutes and uh but the writing is really beautiful and she's really smart and she's i mean her writing has won a ton of awards and it just felt to me like it legitimized the idea of writing about sex in my mind. I was like, oh, you can write about sex and it can be like really powerful and beautiful right. and poetic. It doesn't have to be like trashy, literatica or like embarrassing like sex tales of like my bed. Yeah. Like, uh, like you know, like, yeah, like uh, bedroom confessions. Yeah, exactly. Was there a moment when you started to take writing seriously? Um, I think... There was. I mean, basically, when I started, I started doing my blog, and then I started interning at all these different magazines, mm-hmm. which was really I was able to to work for free because I was living for free. So I really value that. Um, so I was interning advice in days to confuse in a magazine called Tank, and and then I started writing for those magazines, and my blog started catching a little bit, and then it was sort of like, oh, okay, I guess I'm good enough at this. 
you know? Like, I guess right. I'm good enough at this that this could be a real thing for me. Um, and then I started taking it seriously. I think I've had, like, a lot of... I think a normal career trajectory, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, where mm -hmm. it's like, you want to be, at the beginning, you want to be taken more seriously. So I went through a phase where I was just like, wanted to do more serious journalism, and I wanted to be writing for more serious publications. And I was like, oh, I should stop writing about myself. Right. Because maybe that's not serious. And then the swing of the pendulum is like, no, I have to find, you have to almost like prove to yourself that what your, your instincts are valid. Right. Because I was like, oh, I'm not, like, I, you know, I'd feel so insecure because I'd be, even just like a couple of years ago, I have like all these writer friends and we spend summers on Fire Island sometimes. Mm -hmm. And like they all work with like the Wall Street Journal and the New Yorker and they'd be like, I'm going to Moscow to write about how the architecture influences blah, blah, blah. And I'll yeah. be like, oh, cool, I'm writing an article about blowjobs right now. Yeah. And then <laughs> I just felt insecure, but I almost feel like only recently I've been like, actually, whatever, who cares? No. No one I, cares about architecture in Moscow. I think it's the thing where like, you know, for so long when I was making stuff, it was... Yeah, it's that thing where you want to make stuff where you can kind of prove that you are a serious writer, you're a serious filmmaker or something, you know. And then I've kind of gone to the point now where I'm like, what's the thing that I want to see? Yeah. You know, like, what do I want? Like, what is, like, what, what is something that would excite me? And it took, it took me a while to get there. You hear, like, stories of people like Paul Thomas Anderson who's like, yeah, I was in film school for a couple of weeks, and I was like, this is stupid. And then, <laughs> I wrote, and then I wrote Boogie Nights. And it's just like, well, okay, well, you're a genius, and, like, good for you. But that's kind of... Well, I feel like that's a good example because, you know, it can seem so strained when you're like, I want to be taken seriously and I'm going to do something serious. And then you create right. something boring and labored where it's like Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, if you said, I'm just going to make a movie about a porn star, like right. that's definitely not intellectual. Right. But it just felt so, but it was so funny. Yeah. But that movie also is just that movie. It definitely like digs in there deep. There's definitely a lot of like things, you know, issues of family and, you know, leaving one family to find another family and just that constant like searching for family when you're not um at least i could definitely identify with that where you're kind of trying to recreate the idea of family of like what it was it, even though it might not have been what you had in the way you grew up so you're writing for all these magazines um are you still living in london yes and what made you want to move back here um well i got deported because <laughs> <laughs> i basically i was over you know, I didn't have a visa. I have on a tourist visa. And, mm -hmm. you know, you do that trick where you go you out of the go, country and yeah. come back and go out and come back. And then, you know, after a while, they start realizing what you're doing. So I, you know, pretended to lose my passport. And then I got a new passport that was blank so I could do it for a little bit longer. And then you it was like... You got a blank passport? So if you if you lose your passport, you get an... I feel like I'm probably, like, incriminating myself. If you lose <laughs> a passport, they'll give you a new one. Right. And this was before... This was, like, around 2005, 6, 7. So before there was chips mm -hmm. in the passports, mm -hmm. I guess. So then I got a new passport that was blank so I could go and pretend I'd never been. And then I did that a couple times. And then after you lose your passport a ton, they're like, you can't just infinitely lose your passport. It's We... We'll wait to give you a new one. So then someone had the genius idea of like, oh, you should put your passport in the washing machine because then they have to give you a new one. But you didn't lose it technically. Right. So I put my passport in the washing <laughs> machine. And I, this went on for years. And then I was coming back from Paris on the Eurostar one day and they were just like, what are you doing? Like, you have to go home right now. To America. Yeah. They gave me like a week or, or 10 days or something. Wow. And wh was that kind of like upsetting? Did you not want to leave? I think I was ready to leave. I kind of knew I needed to get my life together. I was 20. I was about to turn 25 mm -hmm. and I was doing a lot of ketamine and mm -hmm. like getting to the age where I wanted to have a real house. You know, I didn't want to live with like 70 homeless people yeah. who were all on drugs all the time. And um, 
and I had like this major crush on this guy who lived in New York. Mm-hmm. And I was like, maybe I'll just go to New York and try and fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and then, that's what I did. And then how did it work out? It took me four days. <laughs> to get it. Yeah. Yeah. But you got it. You got what you were, you got what you came for. Yeah. Great. Congratulations. Um, and then I moved to New York and I was like, ew, why was I living in London? <laughs> but you never had like that grand scheme of being like, oh, I got to get out of my small town. I got to go to New York. It just was accidental that I ended mm-hmm. up in London and loved it. I always thought that I probably would move to New York because it was so, you know, the proximity makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really glad that I lived in a different country when I was younger because I think it gave me, I don't know, it's like it's weird being object being able to objectively look at your country and where you came from um and also probably i'm less likely now that i have an established career and roots here to go and pick up and move to a different country right now right right. so i think i'm glad i got it out of the way (laughs) no no that yeah that makes sense um how do you think that when you like looking back now do you think about how you how you developed your your style and approach to writing I don't know. I'm almost glad, you know, so I read all these long form interviews that they do on the Paris Review, like the art of fiction, the art of nonfiction. They do these like 10,000 word interviews with writers and they all have different ideas about whether or not it was good to study writing or it was or it's good that they didn't. Right. And I was just reading this John, Jonathan Franzen one recently and he was talking about how good he thinks, how he's thankful that he never studied writing because maybe then you become too obsessed with the right way to do things. Yeah. Um, and I definitely taught myself how to write by reading, but I also think my instinct has always been to write how I talk Mm. and that is something I try and not like that's the right way to do it. You know what I mean? I've like loved Joan Didion and certainly that seems like writerly writing. Right. But I think that's just where my strength is and that's where I feel most comfortable. Was it hard for you to kind of get to that place? Well, like I was saying before, with I was reading a lot of Dennis Cooper, mm-hmm. and he, the, his books were written so colloquially. So it's all these characters just being like, what should we do? Like, I guess I'm, like, hungry or whatever. And, like, I can't believe you said that. It, it just – but I, in the simplicity of this really colloquial language, he could get really deep. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, you actually don't have to use a zillion big words to express huge emotions. Right. And that was something that I felt really drawn to. Um, so that was also in the, yeah, like I said, you know, there's, you go through these periods where you're like, I'm going to be taken more seriously and I'm going to start using the thesaurus more. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, were there, you know, what were the frustrating moments that you went through? Like, what are the, some obstacles that you had to overcome? Um, I mean, money, was always a huge issue when I, so when I moved to New York, I started having to pay rent mm-hmm. and being a writer, you don't get paid well. No. Right for magazines. No. I was so poor. I was living in this, this gross apartment in Bushwick, like when, in 2010, when Bushwick was not, when it was like less gentrified, I, I guess. Was, yeah, I was, living over, I was living over there then. Yeah, I lived on Flushing, mm-hmm. like above the rec room. Oh my God. I lived right up Central. Oh, I yeah. I lived on Central and Troutman. Okay, so that was really blocks. close. Yeah. In like 2010, it was still, the, at night, it was kind of scary to walk around. Yeah. 
I only paid like $450 a month for a room. It was mm-hmm. a really small, shitty room, but, and I had to like go outside to get back in to go to the bathroom. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think someone told me about those apartments once. I always heard that the apartments above the rec room were like real gnarly. They're really, gnarly. they were just like rooms basically. Yeah. It was like a flop house or like a, like a hot sheet motel or something. I don't know. And we each paid, we paid in, at the landlord in cash. We mm-hmm. like worked downstairs at the hardware store. Anyway, I couldn't even get it together. I was uh, really broke. And then I I started working at a Chinese food restaurant. I worked there for like two and a half years. And not that it's bad, but I remember being like 27. I mean, I shouldn't be cleaning up soy sauce off the floor anymore. Right. You know, this like really low rent noodle shop. Um, So I was having a lot of money issues. But then I started working more as a dominatrix. Really? Yeah. How did you, how did you, you know, enter that world? So I was writing this, I was shadowing a dominatrix to write an article about her for Vice. Mm -hmm. I think I was 25 five or something 26 and um we just became friends basically i followed her around for a few days she was like you obviously aren't freaked out by this um you know if you wanted i'd pay 50 dollars an hour to basically be my assistant and when she was doing sessions so i help her out but also customers will pay more so she was a really successful dominatrix she gets flown around the world she had a really nice apartment in the west village and she'd been doing this for like five years at the time so customers will pay more sometimes to have someone watch what's going on because it's more embarrassing if someone's witnessing them be humiliated. So she would just give me 50 bucks an hour. And to me, that was the more money than I'd ever heard of in my life mm-hmm. when I was 25. So then I, that's how I sort of like floated, continued to float my writing career without having to get a real job because that's what people don't, it's really hard to start out as a writer or I guess in a, as a lot of, you know, as a musician, et cetera. Any, anything. If you, yeah. if you don't have like somebody like bankroll, yeah, rich be- parents. Right. Exactly. Cause then the thing is, and also that's, it's, it's hard too because you have to spend all your time like being like, fuck, like how am I going to keep the lights on? How am I going to keep the roof over my head? You're not being able to spend the amount of time that you should be worrying about like what you're trying to say what you want to do. Yeah. You know, and also you burn out on, so, you know, you have to have, especially in the city where it's so expensive, it's very financially crippling. And so you have to have a real, you know, a day job and then you get tired at the end of your day job. You don't want to go home and write or be creative. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's why people give up on their dreams. No, no. Look, I think about it all the time, right? Because like, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I had the idea that I was going to come to New York, you know, meet a bunch of people and we we're going to have like, you know, we can like live for like no money and we we're going to just get to like make work all day. Mm-hmm. And I got here and that wasn't the case at all. <laughs> yeah. You know, also film is hard because it's, it, it costs money. At least with I writing, know. it's like I can sit at my computer and it doesn't cost me anything to write where I it's know. like, if you're trying to make a movie, it's hard. It's so funny. Cause that's how I describe it to people. Cause I'm like, I'm trying to get funding for this movie right now. And, it's so, I'm like, I just fucking picked the wrong medium. Yeah. If like I wanted to like tell a story through a song, like I could just pick up a guitar and I didn't have to ask for anybody's permission. Yeah. The same thing with writing. You just pick up, you know, just write it out. Like, no, you don't have to like ask for people's permission to make work, you know? Yeah. And some people, I do admire the careers of like a lot of those mumblecore people mm-hmm. who were making movies, um, you know, what, maybe for $50,000, you mm. know, super micro budget movies, but still I'm like, in my head, I'm like, do you guys have rich parents? Like who, yeah. who gave you the 50 grand? Exactly. Right. <laughs> like I don't even know. I don't even know how I would raise 50 grand. Yeah. Was there a moment when with your writing where it started to feel real? 
Hmm. Like when when was when was the day when you were at M Noodle and you're like, that's it, I'm out. Or did, were you able to quit when you were assisting the dominatrix? I quit when I turned 27 because I just, je- like not to sound bad, but I just was like, this is embarrassing. Also, mm-hmm. I felt like it was emblematic. It was a, a symbol to me, to myself, that I wasn't successful. Mm-hmm. I was like, I shouldn't have to have another job. I'm a real writer now. Mm-hmm. And then I don't believe in like vibes or signs or anything. <laughs> but, um, you know, soon after I did get the I started writing for Vogue and I started because you push you if you push yourself into a financially uncomfortable situation you have yeah, to sort it out exactly um so or you have to just move home yeah you exactly know? and nobody wants to do that no so I think that job as soon as I started I think I f- it felt real when I was just living on my writing mm-hmm. um but it's still it feels real now actually <laughs> I was going to say it still doesn't feel real, but it does. But I definitely want, you know, I want to, I want to do more screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Like that's where I see myself in the future because I mean, it's, it's fun, but it's also just financially more realistic. Mm-hmm. You can be a screenwriter and survive. Well, yeah, I mean, they'll just buy your scripts and they'll never make them. They'll just like lock them up and put them on the shelf. Exactly. I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that though. <laughs> I want to make like my own indie movies. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. cool. What, is that something that's a, new, a newer thing for you in terms of like that being kind of an option or is that something you kind of always wanted to do? I think it's something, you know, I guess it could be rooted in the fact that when I went to college, I was like, I want to write plays. Mm-hmm. But, um, a couple of years ago I wrote my first screenplay. Well, I started, which I finished, I guess about a year ago, which I'm raising money for now too. So I feel your pain, Sure, but it's going okay. Um, it's basically, yeah, I, I, my goal was like, I want to write a movie about a really slutty girl who like wins in the end. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, the way a lot of narratives in movies is like the, the punished slut. Of so course. it's like, you know, in horror movies, like the girl who has sex gets her yes. head cut off. Yeah. yeah of course, even yeah. by the zombies. And then, or, you know, something really horrible happens or she gets killed. Um, not only in horror movies. So I was like, I want to write a movie about a girl who has like a lot of sex and then wins. Mm-hmm. And that was the goal. And so, that's awesome. <laughs> that, so, yeah. So it's a comedy that's based on, it's partially based on personal experience because I can't make anything up. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's basically what it's about. A girl having, it's a stark comedy sex, sex exploration movie. That's great. Yeah. But more, re- I mean, I feel like some people have tried to, I feel like a lot of people try to do that stuff and it, sometimes it just, it just feels hokey. It feels like false. Yeah. I feel like it's a tough thing to get right. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was when I had the Amy Schumer. I love Amy Schumer so much. I'm obsessed with her. Mm-hmm. When the Amy Schumer movie came out, I thought that that's what it was going to be like, and it kind of was until it that was one a- fucking we- that ending like was weird. I love. I can't tell you how much I love Amy Schumer. I love her so much. <laughs> I really do. No, I saw her do stand up last year in Baltimore and in like a big, huge theater, and it was the best set I'd ever seen since like when I saw like Dave Chappelle in like 2004, yeah. like it was just, it was just, it was mind blowing. It was like master, like she was just like a master yeah. of like what she does. And I got really excited for that movie. Mm-hmm. I went to go see that movie and I was just like so disappointed. I was so let down. It was funny at the beginning and yeah. then it got to like that whole part where she's like, I'm broken. You know, my, like I have destructive sex and it's like, why did it have to be this reform slut narrative? Why couldn't you have just, the story been like a crazy slut gets a boyfriend. That's mm-hmm. the story. Yep. You don't have to 
look back at your life and say that everything that you've done so far was bad or negative. Of course. That was weird. But I kind of feel like it maybe it was like Hollywood imposing, you know, I wonder if that was in her original script or if they said this is going to be more mainstream. Or, or like maybe like Judd Apatow is secretly like a very conservative guy and is just like trying to push a conservative message. Like if you think about think like so. Knocked Up, you know? Yeah, exactly. Where it's like, you know, like you're getting redemption by like not having an abortion. Yeah, the whole thing where good girls don't get abortions, that's a boring story. Um, yeah. Did yeah. you see Obvious Child? Yeah, I liked that. Yeah. That was good. I mean, I wrote about that afterwards where I sort of looked and I was writing about how abortion's been portrayed in film and I did some research into abortions in movies and it's so mm-hmm. crazy that there's never really been a movie before that movie that anyone saw that was about a girl that got an abortion that wasn't quote punished for it right afterward. Like right. a girl that gets an abortion is just like fine. It, it moves like on with her life. Melodramatic. Yeah. Like this is the end of the road. I know. You Even know? Juno, it's crazy. Cause I love that movie. It's so entertaining, but it is about a girl who decides against getting an abortion when really it's like, you're a pregnant high school student. You should definitely get an abortion. Right. <laughs> right. Although it's weird. It's so funny because I, <clears throat> I, I was adopted. I'm adopted. Oh my so God. It's like, sorry. Oh my God. <laughs> it's tough. Uh, no, but it's like, I could have easily have been. That's not here. true. But I still think that's, you know, everybody needs to be able to have the opportunity to make that choice. You know, if I'm you not weren't like, here, uh, you wouldn't know. Right. <laughs> Did you ever meet your real parents? Oh yeah. I have like a relationship with my birth mom. Oh really? Yeah. It's great. That's awesome. a unique, that's sort of it's, rare, right? It's so rare. It's so rare. I met her when I was 18. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I found out I had a sister and it was really cool. She just started high school. It's awesome. So why did, is that, I don't want to ask like an appropriate question. No, 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 it's how fine. Come, um, she needed to. Well, I was option. a, I was a 13th step baby. What's so, you know, the 12 step program. Oh, okay. So then the 13th step is shacking up with someone in the program <laughs> and having a baby. And it was the thing where she was just like, I, I can't give. <clears throat> I can't, I'm not getting choked up. My throat's getting dry. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I can't give this kid the life that I, this child, the life that I think it deserves. So I'm going to give it up for adoption. Yeah. Cause then there was also a thing where there was a back and forth with my birth father where they're like, Oh, we're going to do this. And then at the last minute in the pregnancy, she's like, I can't, I can't do it. Um, that's cool though that she understood because she could have just been, she could have just been a really unprepared mom. Yeah, and the thing is now the relationship that we have is like, man, is is a dream because it's like you have that connection, and we never had to go through like the kind of the bullshit that you have to go through with your parent growing up. Yeah. So it's just like this like unfiltered just like love. It's very unique, and I feel very lucky to have it, and it's great. And they have two moms. I have two moms, two dads, you know? That's good. Yeah, it's cool. My mom, like, actively avoids. Really? <laughs> like, listening or reading anything I do. do. Did she ever, like, did, do you think she ever, like, goes down the rabbit hole and, like... No, no. not anymore. She, di- she did for a time. Yeah. And what was that like? We would just get into fights, so then we just agreed to disagree. Hmm. Do your parents listen to stuff you do? Yeah, they watch the stuff I do, and, like, they're, you know, they're supportive of it. I don't know if they, like, get it. Yeah. You know? I've never had like a critical discussion with them about my work, (laughs) you know, but I just, I almost feel like if you make it work, they can't be mad. 
right. you know? Yeah, it's like, I don't need anything from you guys. Yeah, like, because the thing with my parents is, like, I've never, you know, I've been financially independent since I was 18. Mm-hmm. I've never had any huge life crisis. I've never been, you know, in jail or I never had a, a, a really drug problem or right. anything crazy. And then a lot of their kids who took more traditional paths who and you know what they that they wished that I was doing mm-hmm. after high school and stuff those kids now are super tragic and like live back with their parents yeah <laughs> you know? yeah no it's tough do you feel grateful to have like had those all those experiences to kind of like that you know got you to this point oh my god totally I just can't imagine I think as a writer just experiences are vital i guess unless you're proust or something and have the craziest imagination ever and don't need to ever leave your house but it's like i find i feel so much more inspired when i am out in the world and doing things and meeting people like it's just i need to i need to be getting drunk sometimes and like making bad decisions and having sex with people i shouldn't be having sex with probably because like what else like what else am i gonna write about (laughs) (laughs) um what are, you know, being a writer, what are the day-to-day, like, fears and stresses that you that you deal with? Um, it's, sometimes the process of writing is really awful. I don't want to complain because I guess every job can be awful. But no, but I just, I'm curious to know, like, what are the, what are the personal, what are the things that you, you know, deal with? Because I, I think, I, I think that's important, right? Because think about people that are listening to this that also want to be a writer. I think it's, or that are going through things. I think it's always helpful to share, you know, what you're what you're dealing with in that way. Yeah. I just feel like so much of my days are like preparing to write and stressing out about having to write something and like taking Ritalin and pacing back and forth between around my apartment and then like Mm -hmm. going for a walk and then drinking coffee. You know, it's just like I, the anxiety of getting to the point where I'm sitting down and doing it can be so stressful. And I, it's always, I can never just hand, I don't think I've ever in my life just handed something in on time, like in a, you know, at like the night before it was due, yeah. it's always like on my deadline day, I'm up yeah. all night and then I like pass out for an hour and then I wake up at 3am and I have to write to try and get something in at 9am. It's like always the most physically and emotionally exhausting experience. Yeah. No matter every single time. Right. There's never the time where you're like, okay, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna get on top of this. Yeah, it's never like, oh cool. Like this is due Friday and it's Wednesday and like oh. randomly I'm done. Right, no. What do you guys want to do? I'm finished. It's never easy. Yeah. And I remember reading this Joan Didion essay. I can't remember which, I think it's, I can't remember which essay it is in, it's in exactly, but she's talking about how no matter what, every time she's ever written something, there has been a moment where she finds herself like sitting in a pile of papers, like scraps of papers with writing on them, feeling like she's actually going to have an anxiety attack or mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. Like there needs to be that point in every sort of writing journey. It's never smooth. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. If she feels like she's going to kill herself every time she writes something, then that just means that that's the way it is. Yeah. Like that's just how it goes. Yeah. And like Kanye West, there was, I love the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. Mm-hmm. He stopped doing it, but his and Kanye West interview was so good. And Kanye West was talking about, that roller coaster of like creating something about how creating something is super painful. Completely. But then after you're done, it's cool after you do something sometimes to look back and be like, Oh, I did that thing. That thing is good. I, I, maybe I am smart, you know? I know I can't, I can't when I'll make like a video or something, like I can't watch it for at least a couple of months afterwards, yeah. you know? Cause I just need that time. Cause it just like for in that moment, it just like symbolizes all that stress, that turmoil that you're like choosing to put yourself through to get it made, to get it done, you know? Yeah. Even like 
I think it was a J.D. Salinger quote where he says, anyone who chooses to write a book, like, has a lot of demons, or, like, has is a masochist or something yeah. like that. Because it's, yeah, I can't imagine that's fun. What are the things that inspire you to keep going when you're dealing with those kinds of, uh, when you're dealing with those kinds of things? Um... I don't know. Just like basic. I want to create good stuff. I probably that's super ego driven. Yeah. <laughs> like I want to be better than other people at what I do <laughs> and I want to be successful and I make a lot of money and make things that affect people. Um, I mean, it's sort of like hard to pinpoint why you, what drives you to do stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think feedback and good recognition definitely helps. Like if you're doing something and you feel like, okay, I'm good enough at this that people are responding in a positive way that gives you, um, it makes you feel good and it like inspires you, but also sometimes really the opposite can inspire you when people, and when people, when you enrage people or people are like, I get all these, I get a lot of sort of troll male trolly Mm. emails, like you're a whore, kill yourself. And I'm like, I love those as well. (laughs) They're They're just working out their issues on you. Yeah, because if you're if you make something and everyone only likes it, that means it's not very subversive or challenging. You have to make something right. that enrages some right. people to know right. that it's good. Right, I completely agree. Yeah, like where's where's John? Where's like the next John Waters? You know, or what? And like, and and it's like you don't make the thing. If you make something to just be shocking, it's gonna fall flat most of the time, right? Yeah. But if you truly have that spirit inside you, and that's like who you are, like where where is that? Like why don't why do we see less of that now? Do you think? I don't know. It's complicated because Brittany Snell would talk about this all the time too. And he mm-hmm. would always talk about, you know, he called millennials like generation wuss because everyone's so positive. Everyone likes, it's like culture and right. Facebook only has a like button and everyone gets along and no one talks shit about, you know, if you, if you're interviewing a musician, they're not going to say like this other musician is shit. Right. Like, people are just like PC. We live in a very tiptoey PC culture, but also we live in a time when there's less money for weird or progressive or subversive art. Like John Waters could not make the movies he was making then now. Even well, no, that he can't get, as he said in interviews, he's like, I stopped making movies because nobody's giving me the money that I need to make movies. I'm not, you know, I'm not 30. I can't make a movie for $50,000 now, you know? And even if he was 30 and trying to make those same, if, if like in a alternative universe, he had never existed and existed now and wanted mm-hmm. to make those movies, he would not be able to get funding. Even like, you know, there used to be money in indie film and now there just isn't. I mean, indie movies lose money. So you're basically, it's philanthropy if you're investing. Did you read that? Did you ever read that book, The New Hollywood? No. It's really good. Yeah. It's all about like kind of like how and why things are the way they are now in terms of like, you know, once Hollywood started just making things for the global market. Yeah. You know, it sucks because I mean, I grew up, you know, in the 90s, like the independent film was just like this fucking just like. It was madness. You know, yeah. there's so much great stuff getting made yeah. all the like time. Harmony Korean. Oh, my God. Like, the fact that Harmony Korean's movies got made is insane. Dude, I have, I have like, my VHS copy of Gummo, like, that I've had, like, since <laughs> I was, like, 14, you know? And, like, he had, like, a huge budget for that thing. Because, like, after kids, they're like, what do you want to make? Yeah. And, like, that's the movie. He's like, I want to make, like, I have, like, you know, not unlimited budget, but, like, enough to, like, do something. Yeah, I, I saw Miranda July speak recently in L.A., mm-hmm. and she was talking about when she made Me and You and Everyone We Know. It was sort of the end. It was right on the, the cusp of when there's there started to be less money in indie film. And she was saying that she thought after that movie was success, she was like, oh, I'm going to be able to make another movie now. And right. she couldn't. It was just like the tide 
changed and she couldn't it took her a long time to be able to get money to make the future and then after that she just kind of gave up for a while she was like i'm just gonna write a book because i don't need someone i don't need to find money to do this right it's really hard i mean it's the same for music too i mean labels don't have like remember they didn't like bands used to be able to like have money to make music videos like indie bands oh no i know trust me i deal with it every damn day this is the thing it's like all these great storytellers you know you know people who get to make exciting movies now to this day are a lot of people who like cut their teeth in making music videos when there was tons of money yeah like, for music video budgets like you know spike, spike jones, jones right like, you know michelle gondry mark romantic you know like they could like take these chances and like have the money to be able to like you know, cause you need the money to, you know, push things into new directions. Right. Yeah. Like I wonder what the spike Jones budgets were for like Bjork videos. And yeah. Stuff. For like, it's so, so quiet. Like what they, I'm sure they probably like rehearsed that for dollars. like, they should probably rehearse that for like a week. Yeah. You know, like they had money to like hire to rent a rehearsal space, <laughs> I know. you know, but it sounds, I feel so like old and angry about stuff. I'm like, remember when writers could write for magazines and survive on that salary? It's like, yeah. that also was a thing that was true in the past. Like, <laughs> I just think it is, I think like our generation of folks just came out being like, there's like more people that were just like encouraged to do whatever they wanted to do. And everybody was like, Oh, I like to do this. I'll, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. So there's just like so many people trying to do this stuff now. Like if you moved to New York in the eighties and you're trying to make a movie, like you're a weirdo. It was yeah. like you and like maybe six or seven other people, <laughs> you know, like my friend's dad like became a cameraman for movies, like literally because he owned a camera. Right. That's the only reason, you well, know, yeah, it's just like accessibility. Yeah. Because you can, everyone thinks they can make something and put it on the internet and everyone will see it. Mm-hmm. How do you think things are changing and how do you want to be involved in that change? Well, I mean, t- despite all the stuff that we were just complaining about, <laughs> I do think that, <laughs> I do think that the fact that as a writer anyway, that you can write that you have a voice instantly through the internet is cool. Um, and I, so I wrote my blog for by myself for like seven years and it's only been in the past six months or ish, maybe eight months. I actually have no idea. Maybe less. Um, that I started commissioning other writers. So I, and it's not something that I ever expected to do, but I'm really enjoying helping other people like young writers have a voice and a platform to to write about what sex and relationships and feminism and mm. ideas and everything that would sort of fall under the umbrella of whatever my website. So that is cool. Um, that's something that I want to explore more, which is like not something I expected to like so much. Um, and other than that, yeah, just like doing. I don't want to. It's not like I. I wake up and think about this every day, mm-hmm. but what it is important to me to, um, to create an open dialogue about sex, especially female sexuality and help to create a world where like women feel more sexually free and empowered. Cause that's super cool. And I love, I mean, I interviewed Stoya this morning mm-hmm. and we just talked about that for like two hours. You know, she was like, it's yeah. She's like, it, she's like, I didn't enter porn so that I could be like a role model for sluts. She was like, but now that I am like, I feel proud about that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. So what's next for you? Um, I'm starting to write a book now, which sounds like torture. Um, (laughs) the books are very long. I've worked out and, uh, and I'm writing my second movie. Awesome. 
Yeah. So hopefully, like, if all goes to plan, the movie that I originally wrote, the first one will will be made early next year. Great. Um, I think that's a great place to end it. Carly Ciartino, thank you so much. Thank you. All right.